It is 1937, and Jerome Dizzy Dean is on the mound in Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. And in the 1930s, Dizzy Dean was at the top among all the pitchers in Major League Baseball. In 1934, he had won 30 games. It wasn't until 34 years later that somebody matched that feat. As he's pitching, a line drive catches him on the toe and breaks it. He has to come out of the game. And for the next several months, he is undergoing rehab for his broken toe. But, as is often the case in athletics, especially at that level, he didn't let the toe heal enough and started pitching again before it was completely healed. But in order to kind of protect his toe, Dizzy Dean started altering the way he was pitching so that when he landed, his toe wouldn't be overly hurt by his, by his form. Well, it changed his pitch sufficiently enough that he ended up ruining his arm and leaving Major League Baseball. All because of a broken toe. You've been looking at Romans chapter 12 over the past several weeks, and, and we'll continue to look at it uh, for several weeks more, Lord willing. And, and the passage that I was asked to look at is uh, verses 3 through 8. And I want to go ahead and, and start as we uh, think about this passage and, and what we can learn from it by not starting in verse 3, but starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment." each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Now, as you think about Romans 12, Romans 12, of course, as, as Terry already mentioned, is a passage that is packed with so much guidance from Paul as he's guided by the Holy Spirit. Right? As, as far as what Paul is putting down on the page, there's just so much in there. That as he noted, you should be able to have 12, at least 12 different lessons of all the things included in there. But of course it starts off with verses 1 and 2. And I know you've probably heard 1 and 2, and you'll probably hear 1 and 2 again. 
But these are key to the rest of this section in 12, 13, and 14. And it starts off with that word, therefore. Essentially, Paul is, is, is saying to the Romans that everything that he has talked to them about to this point is now leading him to show them that there are some ways in which that works out in your day-to-day life. Right? This is moral exhortation. Right? The first 11 chapters, we might say, are, are very doctrinal. Paul is dealing with some very important teachings of Christianity. Addressing a congregation that is divided between Gentiles and Jews. And even though we're, we're probably looking at a letter that is, is after the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, which settled a lot of the issues between Gentiles and Jews, the, there were still issues in the Church of Rome about this. And so Paul really wants them to understand that God has given the good news to everyone who responds by that faithful obedience. In chapter 1, he talks about his, his mission to show the obedience of faith, to bring about the obedience of faith. And he concludes in chapter 16 with saying that his mission is one, to bring about the obedience of faith. That faith is different from an approach to God that says, if I do enough good things, if I do all the right things, God will be pleased with me. But instead, Paul says, no, it is not about keeping the works of the law. No one's made perfect by the works of the law. Instead, even Abraham was made right with God through his faith. A faith, of course, that then is obedient. We don't want to misunderstand Paul and say Paul was just about faith, and he didn't think works were important. That's not true. But it is our faithful obedience that brings about salvation, not any sort of good works that we do. And so, in light of this, the Jew and the Gentile all stand convicted before God as worthy of death because all are sinners, right? To kind of conflate chapter 3, verse 23 and 6, 23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. And so it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. But instead, all of us stand condemned. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. We don't have to face that death. We don't have to find ourselves slaves to sin. But instead, God gives us life, new life, and provides the Spirit. Therefore, given what he says in those first 11 chapters... Therefore, live the right kind of life. Live your life as a living sacrifice. Don't be molded by the world, right? Don't be conformed by the world, but be transformed. And each of the passages that come after this now are understood in the concept of living that transformed life. And he starts off by saying here, in the passage that we're looking at today, that part of that transformed life is understanding 
your relationship to your fellow believers. We're not Jews, we're not Gentiles anymore, but instead we are new in Christ. But even though verse 1 and verse 2 are very individualistic, right? present your body as a living sacrifice, you don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Right? In very individual, the individual has to make that decision. But when we get to verse 3, Paul lets us know, again, guided by the Spirit, that it's not just us. It's not just about me. That part of what happens when I'm transformed is recognizing that I'm part of a larger group, a larger community, a family. Right? As he uses the familiar terms there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or as the New Revised Standard says that I'm using, brothers and sisters, right? It's not just men, it's men and women. We're together. We're part of one body. Which means, as he guides us there, that we shouldn't think of ourselves more highly, he says, than we ought to think. Now, he's been dealing with this issue throughout the entirety of Romans. It's been coming up here and there, especially in those early chapters. The Jews tended to look down on the Gentiles because the Jews were the ones that received the law. The Jews were the children of Abraham. The Jews had the scriptures. They were God's chosen people. The Gentiles weren't. But Paul reminds them that... That law couldn't bring about salvation. And just claiming inheritance of that law without keeping it didn't do you any good. So the Jews couldn't look down on the Gentiles because they didn't keep the law even though they had it. Which might allow the Gentiles to say, well, Jews couldn't handle it so God came to us. And Paul reminds them that even though a lot of Jews in Paul's time, even up to today, have had their hearts hardened by the message of Jesus, not wanting to accept it, they can just as easily be brought back in by the same way that the Gentiles were brought in. So the Gentiles didn't have any space to say, look, we Gentiles are better than you Jews. And so... Everyone needs to recognize that we shouldn't look at ourselves as better before God than anyone else. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. What do you mean, Paul, think with sober judgment? Realistically recognize your place. Now, God would not want to lose any of us. He loves us so much. But we sometimes have to recognize we're not irreplaceable. But the temptation can become, especially in our culture, to think very highly of ourselves. How much of the advertising 
is focused on my wants and my perceived needs. I mean, when you think about most of the merchandise that is pushed upon us in advertising, a majority of it is not buy this product so you can help other people out. It's about what it'll do for you, how you'll look, how you'll feel. But Paul reminds us in the church, nobody's irreplaceable. The church was around before you existed, and until the Lord returns, it's still going to be around. And so we need to recognize that while we're very valuable to God, we shouldn't look at ourselves as better than our brothers and sisters. But instead, Paul uses a metaphor, an image, to help us understand what God has done in bringing Jew and Gentile together. In Ephesians chapter 2, he will use the image of a house, of Jews and Gentiles being brought together, built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets into a house for God through the Spirit to dwell. But in, Revel, excuse me, in Romans chapter 12, he uses the image of a body. Now, it's very easy to remember the places Paul uses body imagery in his writings. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so even though chapters weren't originally a part of these manuscripts, they were added much later, it's a very convenient thing that chapter 12 in both Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the body imagery. It's an image that we can understand because we all have bodies. Yet we recognize that our bodies have different functions, different roles. They are purposed differently. They are shaped differently. They function differently, yet are all connected together. We are, Paul says, one body. Now, he will go into this idea more in depth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and explore this one body, many members image a little bit more fully. Now again, one letter is written to the Romans, another is written to the Corinthians. But I think that having these two passages together helps us better understand this concept. Begin the reading in, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. In this case, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses some rather absurd imagery to prove a point. It would be ridiculous, first of all, to have hands and and eyes and ears and feet talk, let alone them suddenly deciding, I don't need the rest of the body. I can be fine on my own. I mean, it's a ridiculous image for our hand to say to our foot, you know what, I really don't need you. You can almost add, you know, see a conversation going on. Foot saying, how do you plan on getting around then? I'll figure something out. It's ridiculous. Yet what's the spiritual point? The spiritual point is, how can we look around the church at our brothers and sisters and say, you know what, if you were gone, I'd be okay. I could do, I could do it without you. Now, yes, the gospel is very individualistic in the sense we all must, as individuals, make that decision to obey Christ. But the imagery of the body used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 reminds us that it's not just about me, it's about us. Yet don't we do sometimes the very things that seem so absurd when we put it in the context of the physical body? I mean, we wouldn't actually ever come out and say, would we? You know, if brother or sister so-and-so stopped coming, I'd be all right. Yet how many people slip out the doors of our church buildings without our care and concern that they're gone? Because in effect, we are saying, I don't need you. I can get by just fine on my own. Let's go back to Dizzy Dean. It seems absurd 
that a broken toe would ruin the career of a pitcher. You don't pitch with your toes. You pitch with your arm. Yet, that tiny little toe affected how he used his arm. So, when we lose our brothers and sisters to the world, to apathy, because of some squabble, you know, people sometimes have personality conflicts and that leads to people leaving the church. What kind of impact does that have on the rest of the body? We think, oh, nothing. But does it? Those of you that are in the medical field, or are diabetic, or have a family member who is diabetic. Why is it so important that you be careful how you clip their toenails? I mean, think about it. Inadequate care of a toenail can lead to gangrene, can lead to people losing parts of their body. We see it in our physical body. How can we not see it in our spiritual body? We are one body made up of many members. But not only do we need to be concerned about this idea of I don't need you, I'm going to be okay by myself. We also have to worry, not worry, we also need to recognize the other side of that. And that is, okay, I understand that each individual person, me, is important to the collective us. So what role do I have in the collective us? This is the other side of Paul's imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We think it absurd for an ear to say, I really wish I were an eye. I mean, you're an ear. Be an ear. What's the spiritual point, Paul? The spiritual point is we play different functions in the body. So don't be envious about what somebody else's role is. Fulfill your role. If you're an ear, be an ear. If you're an eye, be an eye. If you're the head, well, you're not the head because Christ's the head. So you need to reorient who you think you are. But just as we can't do it alone, we also have to recognize that we need to find our place and be who we're supposed to be. And this is where Paul gets into, now back in Romans chapter 12, the idea of function. Verse 4. As in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace 
given to us. We recognize the absurdity of the ear saying, I wish I was an eye. Or I wish I were an eye, if you're grammatically accurate. But how often do we find ourselves perhaps in a church wishing we could fulfill some other role? Boy, I, if I could just speak as well as the preacher does. Or, I really wish that I was able to fill in the blank. We kind of sometimes have a little envy. Or, or we sometimes, even though, even though intellectually we would say that we're all equal before God, we've kind of developed a little bit of a de facto type of hierarchy in that there's some roles within the church that are better than others. And I, and I think this is part of where we find ourselves with the gender struggles that develop within churches. I'm going to be very careful how I word the next couple sentences. But we somehow, we, we've developed this mindset that there are certain roles that are better than others, and we assume that those that are public in function are better than roles that might be a little bit more private or roles that might be a little bit more limited And we've, we've ignored this, this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I mean, think about it this way. If we understand 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to provide us qualifications for elders, right? and we say, here Paul is laying out to both Timothy and Titus, the kind of people who should fulfill these roles in the church, and you're a single man, are you a second-class Christian citizen? No, you're not. Simply because you're not qualified does not make you second-class it simply means for this role, for this function, God has other people in mind. To pull back from Romans chapter 9, how can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? God has given us different roles. Why? Because it would not make sense if we were all an eye. We can see it in the physical body. Why can we not see it in the spiritual body? We are given different roles. We are given different functions. We are given different gifts to fulfill those roles. Why? 
Because God wants all of us working together because if all your members are working together in your body, we would say, you're healthy. And so if all the members of a church, of a church body, fulfill their functions, are working together, recognizing the need we have for each other, what kind of body is that going to be? It's going to be a healthy body. We can see it here. But we sometimes miss it when it comes to our spiritual body. We have different gifts. And Paul says that they were given to us. In in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the body being ordered as God has assigned. We have different roles and different functions, not because the elders thought it would be a good idea. Not because the apostles said, you know what's going to make this work? It's not because Paul had a bright idea. It's because God gave certain roles. If we look over at Ephesians chapter 4, Paul helps us understand this even more fully. Also a place where he uses some body image. After talking about gifts, which we'll come to in a minute, he says the gifts he gave, the gifts God gave, or excuse me, the gifts Christ gave, were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. God gave us different roles. God gave us different gifts. God brings us together because it's best. It's best... For the body. And when all the parts of the body are working together, the body is built up. Now, when we compare 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with Romans chapter 12, sometimes there's a distinction made between the gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 as being spiritual or miraculous gifts, right? Because he talks about apostles. He talks about speaking in tongues. Uh, He talks about healing. And so, in many ways, those gifts we think of as what we might call miraculous gifts. Which, you know, we don't have time to go into that tonight, but served their purpose for a specific time and then ended, ceased, because of their need to spread the word. But when we look at chapter 12 in Romans, however... 
most of the gifts mentioned there seem to be what some people sometimes refer to as ordinary gifts. Except for that first one, prophecy. That throws it all off. It's a nice little division. Miraculous gifts in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, ordinary gifts in Romans. But no matter what we do with prophecy, which I believe 1 Corinthians 13 says, prophecy was for a time, it ceased. I definitely think that we should look at those other gifts as gifts that continue today, that God continues to use within his church, roles that need to be fulfilled. So let's talk about what these gifts are, what these roles are. Let's start, though, with that idea of prophecy. As I mentioned, I think prophecy here is that miraculous gift of divine utterance, proclaiming a divine message. And so that one, I believe, is is a miraculous gift that has ceased. But why was prophecy so important? Why were the prophets? I mean, when you look through the book of Acts, we talked about from Ephesians chapter 4, the prophets. Why were they so important? Well, we have to remember, we're talking about a time period where the New Testament was not totally written. It's gradually being written. And so there was a need to share the message. And there was a need for people to address issues without being able to appeal to the Bible like we are able to do today. Additionally, Jesus told the apostles in the upper room before his arrest and crucifixion that the Spirit would guide them into all truth. Right? So there was that, that need to bring to people's remembrance what Jesus had said, the, the need to more fully address some of the issues that the church faced as it became more diverse. Right? The, the followers of Jesus, large portion of them were Jews, just very few Uh, Like the centurion, uh, some of the uh, people that approached him in John 12 were Gentiles. Majority were Jews. We're talking about a time period where there were lots of new Christians. The apostles could not be anywhere. So why do they need prophets? Well, the prophets fulfilled a very important specific role. A role that is now no longer needed. Because the Bible provides us with the guidance that they would have provided. But even so, think about some of the guidelines and instructions that were given on prophecy. When you look at 1 Corinthians 14, you have the clearest set in the New Testament of instructions on how prophets were to handle their prophesying. It was to be done for the edification of the church. The messages they were given were to build up the church. Now, sometimes that meant calling people out. Sometimes that meant being very stern about certain behaviors, but ultimately it was for the benefit of the church. But it was to be done in an orderly fashion. It was to be done in a deferential manner. Even the prophets were not to think too highly of themselves. If you look at 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives them guidance that if while the prophet is speaking, another person receives a prophecy, they are to sit down and let the other person prophesy. 
It's completely contrary to our, contrary to our mindset. I am talking. You can wait your turn. Paul says, no. If somebody else receives a prophecy, you sit down. Why? Because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can shut your mouth and sit down so somebody else can go. So even prophecy, a great miraculous gift, was to be used for building people up and to be used in a deferential manner. Now, is there something like prophecy today? In the sense of direct revelation, no. But the message that the prophets received is the message that we have here. And I'm not saying exactly a comparison between preaching and prophecy. But when you look at the message of the prophets, even the Old Testament prophets, a lot of the message was about current conditions and not about future, way off in the future events. I mean, certainly there were prophecies about Jesus, a lot of prophecies about Jesus. But a lot of the message of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many of the other prophets, was about what was going on then and there. And so maybe there is a comparison. Maybe. I am giving my opinion. Maybe there is a comparison to people being like the tribe of Issachar, as is talked about in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. They knew the signs of the times and knew what Israel should do. I think we sometimes find people like that in our churches. They are not prophets. They are not infallibly inspired by God. But because of their study and the wisdom that they have, know the right thing to do. Again, that is my opinion. But even so, that gift of knowing what to do as the tribe of Issachar, the men of Issachar that are described there, needs to be done for building up the church. The second gift is the gift of, of serving or ministry. The idea of rendering assistance, of, of helping, performing certain duties. Now the word here is the same word from which we get the word deacon. But I don't think necessarily he's just referring to deacons. There are some people Paul says, who are gifted with ministry. Now, in a sense, aren't we all to be servants? Aren't we all to serve people? Absolutely. But, evidently, there are some people, and we probably know people like that in our congregations, who just have that heart for service, who are willing to do whatever needs to be done. The idea of teaching. Aren't all Christians supposed to be teachers? The Hebrews writer says, the time has come where you should be teachers, but you have need of someone teaching you, again, the first principles in Hebrews chapter 5. But again, I think we probably would look at a congregation and see there are some people who are just gifted. And so while we have some responsibilities as teachers, all of us, there are some that just have some abilities. And the same goes with encouragement or exhortation, giving and compassion. Qualities we should all have as Christians, but when we look, really look around in a church, 
we can see there are people that, that just kind of stand out as being givers. Right? People who stand out as being encouragers. Right? We're all supposed to be encouragers, but we probably all know if I need encouragement, there's some people I'm going to be around. <laughs> there's probably some others I'm not going to. And so even though, you know, even though all of us are to be encouragers, there are some that just have the ability. Similar to, the word is very similar to the word that forms the word paraclete, as Jesus calls the Spirit, the advocate, the helper. And then finally, the gift of leadership, the ability to influence someone, to follow a course of action. All of these gifts... Paul lists as being roles. Is this list exhaustive? No. No. I don't think the the Spirit means for it to be exhaustive as these are the only gifts, the only roles that exist within the church. But instead reminds us that God gives us gifts for the good of the body. And so, if you sometimes wonder if you have a specific spiritual gift, you know, do I have the gift of teaching? Do I have the gift of encouragement? Well, one thing to recognize as we work together is that spiritual gifts, the ones we're listing here in Romans chapter 12, are other-focused. They're not for the individual but they're to be used to help other people come to a saving faith or have their faith built up. Because we are one body and many members working together, building each other up in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes we lose sight of our responsibilities, our duties to our brothers and sisters. We're thankful, Father, that through the pen of people like Paul, you remind us that you put us into a larger body than just us. That when we work together, we can build each other up, we can reach out to our lost community, and we can shine like lights in this very dark world. We pray, Father, that you would continue to bring us together more fully in love, not only with our brothers and sisters in our local congregations, but throughout Montgomery, throughout the nation, throughout the world. Father, help us to recognize that we all labor together for you, that we all work together for you. Help us to be the kind of people that fulfill our roles, that are concerned about those that are struggling who may be leaving your body, help us to use your word, your encouragement to bring them back. We especially thank you, Father, so much for the love you've shown us through Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.